As you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 8. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 8 this morning. We'll look at verses 31 through 39. Paul has come to the end of a significant chapter. All the way through Romans chapter 8, he's been talking about the ministry of the Spirit and what the Spirit does in mediating the presence of Christ and strengthening believers, helping them put to death the flesh and to live according to the Spirit of God, helping us in our prayers. And so Paul finally comes to this very end of the chapter, and it's as if he wants to look back and Consider all that he's been talking about. You see that in verse 31a. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, all of these things in chapter 8. And really we could say chapters 5 through 8. Because this is the end of the second section of the book. Paul has been speaking about justification by faith and our battle with the flesh as Christians All the way through chapter 7 through chapter 8, when we come to chapter 9, he'll begin a whole new section that deals with God's election and eschatology. And so once again, Paul is wrapping up the second section of the book, and it's as if he's looking over the landscape and saying, what shall we say in light of all these things? This section reads like a catechism, question after question. In fact, there are seven questions in all of these verses. Now, some of the questions that Paul asks actually serve as answers to other main questions. We might call this a sort of biblical jeopardy, you know. Paul will answer in the form of a question. And some of the questions are indeed subordinate to Paul's main questions. That's what I want you to see this morning. There are... I believe, three main, or we might even say critical, questions that the Apostle Paul asks of every one of us. Questions that we need to dwell on. Questions that we need to think about. Let me give them to you. The first one is in verse 31b. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? The second main question is in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And then finally, the third critical question in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I'd like to spend the sermon this morning just investigating those three main questions and coming up to Paul's answers, hopefully to apply these questions to our own lives, in our own situation, wherever we may be. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study together first. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. Lord, we believe in your Holy Spirit, that you move in concert with your word, touching hearts, changing lives. 
So, Lord, do all your holy will in these moments, in every one of our lives, and we'll give you the praise and glory. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, let's look at verses 31 and 32. Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, the thrust here is that God cares in a comprehensive manner about everything in our lives. If you look at these three questions, think about a bullseye, about concentric circles. There is the outer circle, and then there's the inner circle, and then there's the bullseye. And that's the way these questions fall out. First of all, he's saying God is for you. He's not against you. And if God is for you, who is there who's going to be against you? It's a rhetorical question. It's great to have somebody in your corner. We all need somebody in our corner. We think of a boxing ring, and every boxer needs a good manager to watch their life, to watch what they eat, to tell them what they're doing wrong in their stance, in their punches. Well, in the same way, we need somebody in our corner. Sometimes life feels so complex, and we have this sense that no one is in our corner. Now, the history of this is man's daily existence at one time was in harmony with God and with all of God's creation until the fall and the entrance of sin. And since that time, man has experienced opposition, not harmony, with God and with his creation. Adam, you remember, was made to work uh, the garden by the sweat of his brow. Eve would give birth and suffer great pain during childbirth. Later on, we have floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and all of these things will wreak havoc on man's existence. It'll make man's life difficult. Living in the world can become a jungle, as many people think. A dog-eat-dog experience. The survival of the fittest. Well, you'll notice Paul's answer to his own question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, that is Christ, freely give us all things? See, Paul's answer is in the form of a question. God is for us. Why? Because he has foreknown us. He has predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. And therefore, if I could put it in a nutshell, the cost of your and my salvation is infinitely greater than the cost of our living. You hear about the cost of living all the time. And we get a cola, you know, a cost of living increase whenever times are tough. Well, whenever we look at this, we see that Paul is saying, look at the great price that God paid. He gave his one and only son to deliver him up for us all. In light of that fact, how will God not give all things to those who are his children? The context covers all opposing forces that we must deal with in life. 
As redeemed children of God in Jesus Christ, God is always near us, taking care of us, leading and guiding us, and providing all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, according to Paul in Philippians 4.19. So if God is for us, supporting and caring and guiding us, then it naturally follows that there is no opposition to us that will get in His way or thwart His divine plan. Perhaps you feel opposition today. You had a plan didn't work out. You were going along financially, and all of a sudden things changed. And it's important to remember that God will give you all things necessary for your growth and development as His child. And will also withhold things that you may not be ready to handle or do not need at all. We often have a hard time trying to discern what is a need and what is a want, don't we? Don't pay attention to that. This has got to be evil. <laughs> Our men fixed it this past week, and it's going off right now during the message. So pay extra close attention. We need to be able to discern between a need and a want. I want many things in life. We all do. There's a desire for financial security. There is a desire to be loved. There's a desire to be accepted. There's a desire to fulfill your sense of destiny. But what the Lord is saying here is, my purpose for you is to conform you into the image of my Son. And I will give you everything you need to move toward that goal and objective. And in the meantime, it may be uncomfortable. Listen to the words of 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to His life, your life and godliness. Not all the things that I want, but all the things that I need. Now, I'll tell you something, in a life of a conscientious believer, what really you want down deep inside is the presence of God. You want the presence of the God who sent His Son to save you. You want a sense of that reality that Christ is actually living inside of you. I believe that is the deepest longing of every human heart. And yet we try to fill that longing with things, many things, whether it would be money or relationships or luxury items or a sense of purpose and popularity. We try to fill that God-shaped vacuum with things. And here he's saying, look, the Christ who saved you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who saved you and redeemed you is going to give you everything necessary for your life. You don't have to go through life anxious. You don't have to go through life sweating whether or not something is going to happen. Oh, Lord, please give me a spouse. Oh, Lord, please give me a job. Oh, Lord, please keep this illness away. Oh, Lord, heal my body. All these things. 
are things that we believe we need and want, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what Paul is pointing to is to basically define your greatest need and your greatest want, and that is to have the presence of the living God with you. As the psalmist said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing on the earth I desire more than thee? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's why Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you what? The desires of your heart. We don't really know what the true desires of our heart are until the Lord God Almighty reveals them to us. If God is for you, who can be against you? There is nothing that can thwart His plans in your life. Notice the second question quickly. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now the thrust of this question relates to future charges or future accusations and shame. We believe that when Christ comes into our lives, when He comes into our hearts, He forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so Paul's reasoning is this. As an elect child of God, you have been justified by the blood of the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. No power or person can lay a charge at your doorstep that Christ has not already covered. Furthermore, Christ has not only paid your full debt of sin, He is currently at the Father's right hand interceding for you. Why is that? Because He knows how feeble and weak we are and that we need His grace after we've been redeemed. Brothers and sisters, you don't stop sinning after you receive Christ. What you do is you spend the rest of your life realizing just how much you do need Him and how sinful our hearts really are. Our theology says that our debt has been paid in full. However, and unfortunately, some Christians live as if they have or could fall out of God's grace if they do something unworthy of His forgiveness in the future. But let me ask you a question. Whoever has been worthy of God's forgiveness and grace to begin with? The answer is nobody. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't go to the cross to offer salvation for those who were willing to clean themselves up. Jesus went to the cross for dirty sinners who cannot clean themselves up. And the bottom line is you and I as believers do not have to live life waiting for the other shoe to drop. So many Christians do that. They're like Julie Andrews and the sound of music, you know. I must have done something good, you know. Whatever I was in my future life, I must have done something good. I must have done something bad. Some people go through life like that. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. All based on the circumstances. And here's Paul saying, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's important that Christ's payment for our redemption includes not only our sins, but sins against us. 
sins against us. Remember, redemption in Christ Jesus involves the whole person. God has inaugurated a process of redemption and restoration. That is God's goal, to bring things back to where they were prior to the fall. And washing away our sins, while important, is only part of it. Christ also can and will wash away the impact of the sins of others against you. In other words, the Lord did not save you to enjoy your forgiveness and at the same time wallow in the misery created by the sins of others. Don't you know people like that? They talk about Jesus and, oh yes, I know about the gospel and that sort of thing, but I was abused. I was sexually molested. How could a good God allow that to happen to me? I don't know. What I do know is that this God that we talk about is extremely big and great, and He knows everything. He is not unaware of a single sin of you or me, and He is not unaware of any sin against you. And there is no reason to go through life miserable. There's no reason to go through life bitter and angry because somebody wasn't watching out for you. See, we're back to the original question. If He saved you, will He not give you all things? Part of those all things is the ability to come out from underneath the misery and the bitterness of what someone else has done to you. The psalmist says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Wouldn't it be wonderful to sit quietly before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand why this particular thing happened, but I know and I trust that you know all of my ways. And even though I don't have, in a worldly sense, an explanation right now, you give me the grace to trust you. And you will powerfully deliver me from the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and so many other things that keep me from moving forward in knowing you. See, some people live in denial. They'll start denying that anything bad happened to them when it did. And unfortunately, that's a bad way. And the gospel, the gospel approaches that and deals with it. The Lord comes to us and says, I know what happened to you. I know where you've been. I know the pain of your heart. But I am still here. I'm not going away from you. And you know that's true because the Spirit of God always is drawing you back to the Lord as far as you try to run. God's knowledge of our ways includes the bad and the good. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Don't fancy for a second that God is somehow unaware 
of the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life. He's aware of all of it. There's no secret sin or hidden area of our lives that God is unaware of. There is no characteristic smoking gun in our lives that Christ has not already negotiated and paid for. And no amount of shame too heavy for him to lift and excise. And this is why Paul adds that Christ is interceding for us because he knows we are frail and we will fail in the future. After all, we still have a sinful nature that's prone to evil. Yes, Paul asked that second important question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer, of course, is no. Because the greatest enemy often to a believer is him or herself. Torturing yourself with guilt and a lack of forgiveness, a lack of perception of what the Lord has done for you. Well, you see the progression here. Paul says, first of all, Will he not give you all things? Of course he will. He'll give you what you need in life, the basics that go along with life in this twisted and distorted world. And then he goes deeper, and he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You've been forgiven. The Lord will provide for your daily needs, but there is something even more important than that, and that is he's provided for your eternal need by furnishing redemption in Christ. But then we come to the central and final question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? You see, this question relates to the future threatening circumstances that lead believers to think that they might be separated from God's love. And this is the ultimate question. It's God's love that led to the crucifixion of Jesus for your sins. And if the crucifixion of God's Son took place, will He not provide for you everything you need in this life? You see the progression. And so we got to go to the central question. Can anything separate me from God's love? This is the ultimate question because it's the beginning point. And you notice some things here. He says things like distress and famine, nakedness. These are trials in life. They are the equivalent to our time of emotional trauma or financial reversal. We can fall into the mistaken notion that we've been separated from God's love based on something that has happened to us. I was watching a program last night on YouTube talking about uh, seven unusual people. And these people are people all over the world that have suffered horrible, debilitating diseases that have never been known. One was a young man whose hands and feet are like tree trunks, and they grow out all over the place, and it is grotesque. Another young man is a man who has some sort of unusual disease where he sheds his skin every 41 hours. And he has to have constant liquids in order to stay alive. And they went on and on, some of them too hard even to talk about, much less view. But the amazing thing was that each one of these found a reason to live. They found a sense of purpose and significance in this life. They felt love. From others. Now you multiply that a hundred thousand times and you understand what Christian difficulty and trials do for us. God sends trials so that we see the value of life and we see the importance of the priority of knowing Him and loving Him. 
Whenever we struggle with depression or financial calamity or with guilt or shame, we got to go to the cross and there find relief and peace and forgiveness. So those are general trials. He also mentions tribulation, persecution, peril, and even sword. They remind us that we will suffer in this life for our faith in Christ Jesus. And yet, with all of these things going on, you'll notice he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. You read Psalm 44, or a portion of it, this morning. And if you know that psalm, the first part of it begins with this celebration about how good God is and how He provides for all of our needs and takes care of everything. But in the middle of the psalm, all of a sudden, it stops. And the psalmist says, but why now have you left us? Why have you forsaken us? You no longer go out with our armies. It's as if you have abandoned us. Where is your love, Lord? Paul quotes that passage. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It almost looks like Paul is marshalling a similar argument as the psalmist. Lord, where are you? Help us. But notice the difference in his response. Look at verse 37. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And he goes on in verses 38 and 39 to mention anything and everything in all of creation that cannot separate us from God's love. Paul seems to be saying, we conquer by being conquered. You win by losing. And that's why Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, if you give me your life to trust me with it, I will take it and make it the beautiful thing that I've always intended it to be. I will forgive your sins, and I will remove the guilt and the shame for whatever has happened to you. And I will give you all the grace necessary to make it through this life. See, Paul understands that Christ works through weakness. Christ's power is made perfect through weakness. He knows we must lose our life in order to find it. That's why he said in 2 Corinthians, we're always caring about the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death worketh in us, but life in you, Corinthians. God has a way of turning things upside down. In order to be first, you've got to be last. In order to live, you've got to die. And so he looks at these things and he says, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, but in that very thing we are conquerors. I'm not going to look at my future with dismay. I know that God has my future under control. What I'm going to do is the very thing that Paul said. I'm going to see that Christ is living His life in me and through me. And by doing that, I'm going to discover what true life is really all about. Paul knows this because the great shepherd of the sheep, the unblemished Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was slaughtered on our behalf. He was the unspotted lamb who was led to the slaughter. And because Christ was put to death, he arose from the dead in his resurrection, and now he lives to give life to all those 
who give their life to him, who submit their life to him. And ladies and gentlemen, he will never, ever, ever leave or forsake you. I love the words of 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Listen to this. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're going through something difficult right now? You're being persecuted for your faith? Stand back. Believe God's word. And realize that in another realm, the realm of his kingdom, something beautiful is happening. If you open your eyes to see it. What can separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted Him? Have you had the experience of Him taking up residence in your heart and life? If you haven't, I beg you, to invite him in. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And watch him come into your life by faith and begin to transform you into a new creation. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for this marvelous chapter and the concluding questions of the Apostle Paul. And I pray, Lord, that we would, every one of us, negotiate every one of these questions today. That we would think about them and meditate on them. And that, Lord, through them and by your Spirit, you would work in our hearts, doing that which is pleasing in your sight, converting some of us, sanctifying the rest of us, and getting all the glory for your powerful work through Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and the glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.